Good morning, One Chapel. So glad to be with you today. One thing I want to say before we begin, uh, just encourage all of our campuses, no matter what campus you go to, uh, the Austin campus is moving into a brand new building here this fall, and we purchased the building in March, but it's been under renovation, and we're, we've had some work days, and we're going to go back to some volunteer work days. October 3rd and October 17 are the next two work days. Let's pray, and then let's open the scriptures. Father, we just thank you for our time here. We thank you that your presence is among us. We thank you for worship, worshiping together. Even though we're maybe physically distant, we sense your presence is so near. And so, Lord, we just want to come to your word now, and we want to open our hearts, and we want to allow your living word to speak to us. Let light shine into our hearts so that we can respond to you and give us the grace, Lord, to obey. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the second week of our brand new series titled, What If Jesus Was Serious? Today, fewer people identify as Christians, fewer attend church with regularity. The the fastest growing group, the fastest growing religious group in the United States is something called the nuns, meaning none, meaning those who have no religious affiliation. And this is a challenge because along with these demographic changes, fewer people see the Bible as a source for moral or spiritual wisdom and popular attitudes towards traditional Christian values, sexual ethics now reside somewhere between uh, indifference and hostility. And so I do think it's tough. I think so many of us have our own ideas as to why this is happening to us. And we're all quick to kind of start pointing our fingers at a variety of causes. But let me ask you this. What if we have it backwards? What if the problem is not out there, but the problem is right here? Right here. What if the underlying problem isn't that we take Jesus too seriously, but is that the problem is actually that we don't take him seriously enough? I think this is such a powerful question. What if much of the culture's judgment of us as Christians isn't the result of us obeying Jesus, but rather ignoring him on critical issues? That's where we need to, like, look deeply. (laughs) We need to think deeply. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to teach us and and to help us discover how to follow him more willingly, more clearly, more obediently. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21 through 29. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, not everybody who calls out to the Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, he's saying. And then he says, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And then he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. So they'll call out, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? He'll say, and in your name, drive out demons. And they'll say to him, and in your name, perform many miracles. And check this out. Now watch this. Then I will tell them plainly, Jesus says, I never (laughs) 
knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Jesus seems to be indicating that there are people who are doing spiritual things, but who ignored what Jesus wanted from them. Check out the rest of the passage. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into, come on, say it with me, practice. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Keep going. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. So storms of life come, bad things happen. Struggle is part of this life that we're living. And it says, he says, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Now that's awesome. That's good. That's what we're called to. But look at what, he, what else he says. He describes something else. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who built his house on sand, something that wouldn't hold up in the storm. And look what happens. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Now I want you to see something in this passage. These people that were doing spiritual things Check it out. They did miracles. They did exorcisms. (laughs) They cast demons out of people and they prophesied in Jesus' name and Jesus calls them evildoers. What does this even mean? What does Jesus really want here? I want to suggest to you that he wanted, he wanted their hearts to match his. I want to suggest to you that he wanted their deeds to come from a motivation of love and nothing else. I want to suggest to you he wanted their actions to reflect his actions and his heart. And so what if Jesus was really serious about these things that he said? What if Jesus was really serious about what he spoke of? Because there is a real tension between coming to church and praising Jesus and then actually living through the week and obeying Jesus. Which explains why so much, so much of contemporary Christianity has lost its moral authority and spiritual credibility. Here's where we're going to begin in Matthew 5, 1 through 2. I hope you have your Bibles with me, and you can check it out with me. You can read it with me. I'm just going to read the whole thing here. I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to read it through. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we're going to look at this little section these few phrases that Jesus uses, 
And we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to unpack them. And we're going to ask, what if Jesus was serious about these phrases? And then work to consider how we should respond, how we should act as we understand these ways that Jesus is describing for us. So based on these teachings, five ways, here's five, six, we're going to look at six today, six ways we can respond to what Jesus is describing. Number one, if Jesus was serious, then we will focus more on his good news and less on religious to-dos. You know, it's dangerous when religious people read the Bible. And they are often tempted to, to take the particular of a passage and make it universal. Uh, for example, in the Gospels, Jesus calls Peter, and he's a fisherman, and he calls him to leave his fishing business, and he, and he wants to make him a fisher of men. Rather than seeing this as Peter's particular calling, that those steeped in religion will sometimes take these kinds of things and insist it is a universal expectation upon all Christians. And while heaping on the guilt, heaping on the guilt, they conveniently ignore other stories where Jesus gives um, the would-be disciples that are all around him callings of a very different nature, different than Peter's. Jesus even tells some of the disciples to to go home. (laughs) Go home to your people, to your family. The gospel writers, listen, the gospel writers did not tell Peter's story to prescribe what all believers should do. The story was simply meant to describe what Peter did do. And that's sometimes the challenge for us. And it's the same temptation to confuse description and prescription. In other words, you can confuse when the Bible is describing something or when it's prescribing something. And that's at play here when reading the opening statements on the Sermon on the Mount. This section here is known as the Beatitudes. And I've heard many a sermon on the Beatitudes. You got to have better attitudes. So these are the attitudes you need to adopt to be the kind of person God wants you to be. Nothing could be farther from the truth of this passage. We often read this passage from a list, a tendency, a a perspective of reading this passage from a list of things to do. But the word beatitude, you know what it actually means? It means a state of utmost bliss, blessedness, happy, fortunate, even lucky. Jesus is describing people who are blessed. In the first 12 verses, Jesus identifies who is blessed by God. His list includes the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the the weak. Some misread this, this section as prescriptive, as what we should seek to be if we desire God's blessing. Such a reading will lead us to believe that being joyful or courageous is ungodly. And that sadness and weakness are true signs of spiritual maturity. Of course, that's nonsense. That's not what this passage means at all. Jesus is not prescribing how to be blessed, but rather describing who is blessed. And while the world says the strong and the powerful and the happy are well off, 
Jesus turns our expectations upside down by saying, it's the weak, the sad, the overlooked who are well off in God's kingdom. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is not a to-do list. (laughs) It's not a list you got to work harder on. Instead, it's a good news list. It's a good news list. It means there's good news for people who are struggling. Good news for people who are poor. Good news for people who are suffering. Good news for people who are in grief. There's good news for people who are just trying to make it. Jesus is describing who has the most to gain by the arrival of his kingdom. Who has the most to gain by by seeing his kingdom come and his will be done in their lives? He's not prescribing what you must do to enter it. And in some way, he is saying, no doubt, we must see ourselves as poor in spirit. We must see ourselves as grieving our own brokenness and weakness so that we put ourselves in a position to receive kingdom life that Jesus is offering. But it's so important to realize this is a good news list. This is not a a, a, a bad news list or a struggle to-do list. Number two, if Jesus was serious in this passage, if, if what Jesus is saying in this passage, if he was serious, then no one is beyond God's blessing. No one is beyond God's blessing. If you, if you want to be truly happy, you stay off social media. <laughs> Recent studies have found, and you you guys can read them, and, and you've heard it said over and over again, the more you use social media over time, the more likely you are to experience some negative physical health, negative mental health, negative life satisfaction. Now, I think we've traced this down in our culture to, um, to the problem of a, a lack of reality on social media. What gets posted on social media isn't reality. The highlight reels, or uh, these are the snapshots that we see are only the best and um, often the, 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 gr- the best authentic, inauthentic moments, not the authentic moments, but the inauthentic moments. And as a result, we end up comparing the unglamorous reality of our own lives with the fake glamour and the f- fake reality of somebody else's life. This is our struggle with with social media. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this on Pinterest. You know, I'm, I'm looking to redo my kitchen right now. And I'm, Amy and I are looking at all these things in our house and we're trying to figure out what we want our living room to look like. And we, we, we see all these posts on Pinterest and it just looks perfect. It's just like, that's what we want. That's, and it seems like we can never do it. And the truth is that's not how their house looks on Tuesday at 2.35 in the afternoon. There are projects that we want to do, and I think we ought to I think we ought to include more of the projects and the process in the project on Pinterest rather than the finished product. But I think that's a big idea of why we struggle with social media. And, and listen, it's a, it's a relatively new human invention that we're dealing with in our culture, the underly, but the underlying human instinct, the underlying human instinct to project a positive even if it's false. A positive self-image is nothing new. Ancient Jewish culture was plagued by this same thing. This tendency rooted in its understanding of who was, has been blessed. Blessed, this, this idea of 
hashtag blessed has been around a long time. At the time of Jesus, most people believed the healthy, the powerful, the rich, the respected, the educated, these people were clearly the favored ones. These people were clearly favored by God. And the logic is simple, right? If, if your life looked good, if you're, it, it must be because you are good. And God has blessed you for your religious devotion. The opposite was also thought to be true. If your life looked bad, it must be because you are bad. And God has cursed you for your sinfulness. Like modern social media, this desire to be perceived as blessed by God led people in the Jesus' culture to project a positive but false public image. The religious leaders were the worst offenders. This human thing has been around a long time. The truth about your life is less important than what people thought or think is the truth about your life. Jesus doesn't play that game. Jesus doesn't embrace that. Instead, in his sermon, Jesus described who is really blessed, and it wasn't those who looked blessed by the culture. In fact, Jesus's countercultural list of who is blessed challenges us in two ways. Probably more, but two ways. First, it means that no one is beyond God's blessing. Like, like, like no matter how bad it is, no matter how things have gone wrong, no matter what's happened in your life, you're not beyond God's blessing. Listen, I'm talking to somebody right now who's, who's listening to the, this message and life feels like it's in a shambles. You are not, you are not a person who is beyond God's blessing. God has a blessing for each of us. And sometimes it takes a while to discover it. But just because you feel like life is out of control does not mean that God's blessing is not on you. In fact, sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes it's the success in life that leads us to the lack of blessing. And so here's the two things. Here's the two things. the, The two ways that it challenges us. First, Jesus reminds us that even those society calls cursed or worthless are to be shown dignity as recipients of God's care. Even the people that are really in trouble, even the people that have chosen poorly, even the people that are in trouble and society would call cursed or worthless, they're to be shown dignity as recipients of God's care. That's what we're called to do as Christians for sure, but that's reflecting kingdom life. That's reflecting kingdom ideas and kingdom uh, habits. Second, Jesus obliterates our wicked tendency to judge others by their circumstances. And we just, we have to let that go. You know what empathy does? Empathy looks beyond the reason people are in their circumstances and it allows compassion and mercy to, to be to be expressed toward that person so that you can help them. Of course, the same goes for judging ourselves. Some of you are way too hard on yourselves. Uh, We're all way too hard on ourselves. Who is really blessed or not blessed cannot be determined by a person's appearance or their circumstances or social media highlight reel. Don't buy it. Be careful. Don't get sucked into the lie that projecting All positive images is the way to live. Jesus had a different way of life. 
He said, blessed, fortunate, even happy are those who realize even though their lives are broken, even though that there's sin and struggle and even failure or loss, that nothing can keep you from God's blessing. Number three. Are you keeping up with me now? Number three. Number three, if Jesus was serious, then heaven is already here. Jesus refers to heaven regularly in the Sermon on the Mount, including in the opening sentence, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first question we have to ask is, what is the kingdom of heaven? If we misunderstand what Jesus meant by this phrase, we're likely to misunderstand the whole point, the whole passage, and probably we'll misunderstand Jesus himself. So first I want to highlight this idea. First, the kingdom of heaven is not the church, right? It's not, it's not church. Some assume a local congregation is a church, but collecting all the churches together, everybody, all the churches come together. That's the kingdom. But that's not what Jesus meant. Second, the kingdom of heaven is not where people go after they die, after death. It's not where people end up. Okay, Jesus was not speaking about the afterlife in the Sermon on the Mount. In English, now listen, check this out. In English, heaven carries all kinds of supernatural and spiritual meanings, but the actual word used by Jesus was plural. Literally, heavens. And more like how we might use the word skies to describe the atmosphere. That's, that's, what, that's what Jesus was describing. The air isn't a distant realm, right? It's all around us. That's how Jesus uses this idea of heavens. Jesus uses the word heavens to speak to the non-physical, invisible, but very present realm where God dwells. In other words, he dwells around us. He dwells in the heavens. It is the realm, check this out, it is the realm where God rules and evil is powerless. That's the heavens. And in the Jewish mindset where Jesus uses this term, that would have included everything in the world all the way down to the air around your head. And so we understand there's this unseen realm. Jesus announces that his kingdom is now at hand. It is coming. It is being revealed. It is suddenly coming into view. The kingdom of heaven has broken into our world and a new way of life is now possible. And the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, Jesus is unveiling a new ethic for those who belong to this new kind of kingdom that's not of this world. And that's, and that has to be something we embrace. Like we have to really see that, that heaven is already here all around us, that all we're doing is tapping into it, that all we're doing is plugging into what Jesus is already doing and saying that the Holy Spirit is all around us and we are his people and we're attentive to the spiritual realm and the, the idea of heaven breaking into our earth's orbit and into our earthly way of thinking and acting. All right, number four, if Jesus was serious, then we will make room to cry. If Jesus was serious, then we'll make room to cry. Here's the question. Is the Christian life only for happy, clappy people? Is it only for people who are really excited? Is it only for people who really like to worship hard? No. Where are the doubters, the grievers, and the where the heck are you, God, people? The complainers, where are these people? I've 
I was a worship leader for a long time. And I remember being challenged by this idea. And I ran into pastor after pastor who would say that the way to have a great church service is worship has to start with a huge celebration. And it's just celebrative. And it is this thing. And and the way they would interpret celebration is two fast songs, a mid-tempo, and then two slowies. This was kind of a a ritual of sorts for the modern worship movement. But I think it misses something when we just think that all our gatherings should be upbeat or energetic and focused on the victorious Christian life, even though that's very real. The problem with this nonstop celebration model, apart from being inauthentic, is the way it ignores the examples found in the Bible. The book of Psalms, for instance, served as the prayer book and worship liturgy for God's ancient people. It's the prayer book Jesus and his disciples would have used in their worship. Psalms included songs of celebration for sure, but it also included prayers of lament. In fact, there are many more prayers of complaint and cries for justice in the Psalms. Psalm 13 is one of my favorite. It says, how long, O Lord? How long do we have to wait? It's a frequent prayer in the Psalms. Ancient worship, it seems, needed to be celebratory, but also angry, mournful, honest, contemplative, and repentant. And I think we got to get in touch with that because that that is an authentic human experience. Why do we think our worship should only be one-dimensional? Because humanity is multidimensional. And I think that's even part of our ability to, to, be, uh, to resonate in our, with our message to our culture. Because they're not sure we're real. We're not, they're not sure that we, we will be honest about how hard life is. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. This addresses those who are experiencing grief. But it can also include those who mourn alongside others in their pain? Where do we make space for this? Where do we make, make this a legitimate part of the Christian life? We need to do a better job in our gatherings and we need, to, we need to realize that people are all over the map. And when we gather, both in a Sunday gathering and also in a, in a smaller community or group gathering, people are coming from all kinds of places and very often they want to hide because they're ashamed or, they, or they're not sure they're welcome to share their loss. We need to be people that embrace the idea that God's blessing extends to those who mourn. And we enter into that. We don't weep as those who have no hope, but we believe God's blessing comes to those who are in mourning. Number five, if Jesus was serious, then we will trust God more. <laughs> and politics less. <laughs> Uh-oh. Here's a question. Here's a question. Who are the meek, and why will they inherit the earth? First, we've got to understand Jesus' context and his audience, how they would have heard this statement. The word translated as earth can also be translated as land could be translated as land, which is probably a better reading because throughout the Bible, we see the relationship between God and his people is linked by a promised land. 
faithfulness to God meant they could dwell in the land in that, in, in, and, and have peace in their land. But unfaithfulness to God meant losing the land and even being forced into exile. That's kind of the story of the Bible. Centuries before Jesus, the Jews had returned from exile to the promised land, but they did not fully possess it. The Romans, who were pagans and idolaters, ruled over the land, right, in their empire, which was unacceptable and humiliating to the Jewish people. Are you tracking with me? Follow me along. Follow along with me. In a sense, they were still in exile because they remained under the thumb of a foreign power. And this provoked a number of, a growing number of Israelites who would become zealots. Talked about this uh, a few weeks ago in the Jesus Way series. The zealots were violent revolutionaries, and to the Romans, zealots were terrorists who wanted to, to kill them and destroy them. To many Jews, these zealots were freedom fighters. The zealots believe in using the world's violent ways to achieve what they believed were God's goals. Their goal was to inherit the land by force. By announcing that the meek were blessed and would inherit the land, Jesus was condemning the tactics of the zealots. He was proclaiming that it was not the powerful or the violent or the angry who will accomplish God's purpose, but the gentle, the peaceful, and those who put their trust in him rather than the sword. This is an important reminder for those of us who are living in a divided time, a divided land where everything has become politicized between us and them. Whoever us and them are. Like the zealots, we can be tempted to use the world's ways, coercion, power, fear, to take back the land for God. Instead, Jesus calls us to something so much more profound, to put such things aside and discover the power of God available through meekness. Meekness does not mean weakness, but it is. it does mean trusting the Lord and the meekness of his ways for the results rather than through the sword of politics that the land is won. If politics could help Christians inherit the land, it would have happened many, many elections ago. We got to see that. Number six, this is, this is the end. Number six, peace is costly, but worth the price. Peace is costly, but worth the price. Jesus said the peacemakers would be called sons of God. He did not mean this in a, like a messianic sense. He, he was, it was a common Jewish phrase to, to, to attach son or sons, to attach it to someone's character or their identity. For example, Jesus called a group of religious leaders a brood of vipers, right? Because their lies and their hypocrisy, those qualities were associated with snakes in the ancient world. So he calls peacemakers sons of God because our heavenly father is also a peacemaker. But the way God makes peace is important to recognize. And as we look at the popular perception of peacemakers. We have to realize that we've been influenced by the world's, the, the, the word's negative connotation. And that connotation in politics and counseling is that of weakness and avoidance. We are not called to avoid. We are not called just to be weak. 
we view peacemakers as people who desire the appearance of serenity so often. We, wanna, we, we view peacemakers as people who suppress visible conflict. Such people, however, are not peacemakers. They are peace fakers. <laughs> they try to keep the peace rather than make peace. Avoiding conflict is not the way of Jesus. If we avoid conflict, we don't represent the way of God and it doesn't make us his children. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1.20 that God has reconciled, reconciled to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, meaning the death, the burial, the resurrection, the, the, the sacrificial laying down of his life, taking our sins and the sins of the whole world upon himself. It was costly and it was painful. Jesus forged a peace not by denying the presence of evil in the world or by avoiding its power. It was a hard-won peace worthy of God's praise. What, what difficult circumstances or Difficult relationships are you avoiding for the sake of peace? I want to pray for you for the courage to do the hard, costly work of peacemaking because this is what we're called to do in this world. This is what we're called to do in this uncertain time to be the people who reconcile relationships, who put people together and never tear them apart. If Jesus was serious about us being peacemakers, we have to resolve that we are people of peace. God's peace. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. Oh, you're already at home, most of you. (laughs) So I want you, sometime this week, I want you to reread this passage. And I want you to reread it maybe a few times during the week. Maybe read it at at a, a Zoom group that you are connected to. Or maybe some of you are even involved in a physical group where you're gathering outside or or something for dinner. Uh, I want you to reread this passage and I want you to not just hear the words, but I want you to see what Jesus is calling us to do and talk about it and then share together, pray for each other and ask this question, how can we follow the ways of Jesus in a more intentional and a a more gracious, a more more positive, a more uh, um, grace-filled way? And so I want you to do that this week. Get together with a group of people and talk about that. And I want you to realize that none of you, none of us, none, none of any of the people that are hearing this message today, none of the people who heard Jesus' message in his day could do this without entering into the kingdom, the kingdom life that Jesus had for them. I want to ask you if you'd be willing to enter into that kingdom life. I want you to reject the life of the world and its ways. And I want you to embrace the kingdom life and the ways of Jesus. And I want to lead you in a prayer right now to do that. So let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask you to help us. Give us insight. Give us revelation. Give us understanding of these things. Some of them are hard teaching. Some of them, they come into conflict with our knee-jerk reactions, what, maybe what, even, what we've even been taught throughout of our life, even, even things we've learned in church. But here we are looking at this 
passage, looking at this message, this Sermon on the Mount with new eyes and a new heart. Lord, forgive us for adopting the ways of our nation versus adopting the ways of your kingdom. Forgive us, Lord, for adopting ways that are rooted in our own selfishness or or in our desires. And, and forgive us, Lord, for going our own way. Lord, we want to go your way. And so take us now. Show us how to live your way. Show us how to live with these principles, with these, these ideas being generated. Help us to see how your kingdom is coming into the world that we live in. And it is part of our role as your people to reflect these kingdom ideas. Lord, we want to follow you and we want to make you the one, the only, the Savior, the Lord, the King of our lives today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.